I had depression and anxiety when I was a kid, but I could sing. My father loved music. We had great records. He played the guitar, and that was it. That was the magic. Music saved my life. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. I'm Andy Langer. This week on the show, Sean Colvin. Last month, the Grammy-winning singer-songwriter released an acoustic version of her debut album, Steady On, to celebrate its 30th anniversary. The original album earned Colvin her first Grammy, establishing her as a rising star in the folk and acoustic world and setting up a surprising pop crossover three albums later. In 1996, she won a pair of big category Grammys, Song of the Year and Record of the Year, for her hit single, Sonny Came Home. In 2012, the Austinite released her memoir, Diamond in the Rough, a survival story that unapologetically addresses her struggles with anorexia, clinical depression, addiction, motherhood, and assorted career crises. On the show, we touch on all that and what she sees as her place and legacy in a very different music world than she stepped foot into 30 years ago. This is Sean Colvin. Welcome. Thank you. So in 2001, Uh I'm not doing the math, but (laughs) we spoke, you had an album coming out, and it was the album after the big album. Oh, yeah. Whole New You was the name of that album. Yeah. And it had taken a while. Mm-hmm. And this is what you told me. This was for the Austin Chronicle in 2001. Oh, boy. You said, I'm realistic about who I am and how old I am in relation to what's popular out there. At the same time, it's inevitable you feel the pressure. The precedent's been set that I have broad appeal. But I never felt like I was hit material. I'd made peace with that. It's still not part of my expectations, but I want it. It's like a carrot you had a little taste of. Very accurate. And, you know, as I suspected at the time, I waited too long because I had the audacity to have a baby. And um, and the record company was basically not interested when I'm, you know, by the time I made that record. It Do was you four think you years lost down the momentum line. because the Business side or the audience side? Both. Both. Um, I mean, that whole, um, when was it? It was the late 90s, the Lilith Fair era um, was, you know, considered a trend. Um, And perhaps it was to an extent, you know, because it hadn't really been seen before. And I remember... Meaning to be a successful woman. Correct. Well, for there to be several... Right. You know, God forbid. And the radio stations were really didn't want to play two women back to back. Yet you had all these women with hits. So it was strange. And and then me, you know, having a baby, I I know they, you know, all the guys there kind of went, well, that's the end of that. And um, but sure enough, the the audience did change in terms of what was going to be popular on radio and they felt there was nothing they could pitch by the when I made Whole New You and we tried to speak to it which was our big mistake uh, with a few small repairs I'd made three records 
record company, Columbia, had looked for a hit, uh, a single on each one of them. And I compromised some of the production um, for those songs in an effort to appease them. And, okay, what's wrong with a hit? All right, you know, I'll, I'll bend a little. Well, nothing ever happened. For example, there was a song called I Don't Know Why on Fat City. And it's just a simple folk song. I wrote it on acoustic guitar solo. And Nothing Compares to You by Sinead was huge. And they're like, we need to make it. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing compares to you. And I'm like, okay, give it a go. So they put, you know, a synth pad and it didn't go anywhere. So by the time we, uh, I'm talking about John Leventhal and I, got to uh, a few small repairs, we were like, the heck with it. Um, We're not going to think about addressing radio. We're going to give them the record we want to make. We won't cry if it addresses radio and we think we have songs that are capable of that but that's the last thing we're going to think about and then the irony of course is i had a hit you had a hit that was almost too big of a hit <laughs> is that fair sure i'm like for a the one kind of career wonder. you had and wanted yeah i'm a what hit wonder if you look at the the broad perspective of of who's had hits you know i had one and that that was really it and i Stand by what I told you in '91. I'm, I'm not it was a hit 2001. Artist. We're not 2001. <laughs> you know, it's all so long ago at this point. I'm, I'm, I never intended to be a hit artist, and I, I don't think that's really what I do. Had that song been a moderately smaller hit, though, yeah, you would have been able to groove along at the pace you were, though, more than likely. I don't know what pace that would have been. Maybe so. Maybe so. Well, Whole New You is a strange record. You know, and people have come up to me and said, that's my favorite. And I'm always stunned. Um, I really had, was blocked after having Callie. And uh, I didn't know what to write about. I was exhausted. And my life changed, you know, overnight. And so it was full of... I don't know. It was. I still think it's strange, you know. Although there's several songs on there I really, really like, but some that I'm not so fond of. You wrote in your book about postpartum depression. Mm. How much of that do you think was? This is clearly going to derail my career. Oh, it, part of the depression. You yeah. Mean? It was. No, so they're unrelated. No, it was just chemical. I mean, I felt a ton of pressure, but I was so depressed. That, I really didn't dial that in. I just wanted to keep this child alive, you know, <laughs> that was, and survive myself. So that's kind of where I was at. And then eventually I gave up the idea of trying to write um, sweet lullabies, you know, for my next uh, project because I, and I felt like that's what I ought to be doing, but I didn't feel that way. And I finally gave myself permission to write about how I really did feel. And I wrote a song called Matter of Minutes, which is about getting the heck out of there and running away and you're not supposed to say that stuff but that freed me up and and I was able to continue all of that said you had success at a time where success because of the way the music industry Mm. was set you up for a career yes because you were that ubiquitous then yes that's the advantage of having had, even if it is what looks now like one hit wonder mm-hmm. success, that's clearly the advantage. That wouldn't happen now, I think is what you're getting yeah. at. 
yeah, I, that, yeah, that was lucky. Who would have first seen, you know, uh, that that would be, well, pretty much next to impossible at this point. So yeah, there was still a business that, um, had, uh, well, I mean, I did make, you know, top 40 radio, but there, there was, you know, triple A, what we called triple A. And, um, that was a viable format for my, you know, my career up until, geez, um, I think maybe these four walls started to disappear, maybe before. Um, and that helped create my career as well and set me up, not to mention an amazing push by a record company that had muscle and uh, just felt it was time. And I guess, you know, obviously saw kind of a trend going on. But, you know, they were behind me. And again, you know, I wouldn't have that now. Where the timing did work is that by the time a Sonny came home, you were, what, sober already 15 years? Well, I got sober in 83. So somewhere in there. Yeah, and that was 97. So, yeah, I can't do the math. I'm horrible. (laughs) You go ahead. But you wouldn't have been ready for that kind of success. Oh, no. Any younger. No, it happened at exactly the right time. I mean, what did Bonnie Raitt say when she get—remember when she won all those tons of Grammys? That's right when Steady On came out, because I remember watching the Grammy Awards from Australia when I was um, promoting the record, and— and she said, and I, and she had just gotten clean, and she said, I, I thank God for bringing this to me at the right time. And yeah, I have, I was 32 when that record came out, which is, you know, you wouldn't even, that would be ridiculous these days. You'd be absolutely put out to pasture by then. Um, but no, it, it, I, well, certainly before I got sober, it would have been a disaster, but it took me, from the time I was from 83 when I was 27 years old until 19, you know, 10 years to grow up enough, wake up enough and to to what kind of artist I really was. Because I was writing, I wasn't writing songs. And then when I tried to, I was writing terrible songs. And I turned a corner and found my voice as a songwriter. Moving to Texas was part of that finding out you wanted to be a songwriter portion of that back in the 70s yeah yeah I I don't remember who I, I might have said it to you you know I think we moved here in 76 I remember being you know I lived in Illinois southern Illinois I didn't know what to do and I, I joined this country swing band and that was clearly you know, not the hippest thing to do and I came down to Austin with the Dixie Diesels that band and it was about songwriters here it was about songwriters. I think that was just solidified, uh, you know, the notion that they're important, valued, have a place, um, stories are important. And um, it was quite a relief, actually, to be in this um, in this atmosphere and, 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 and the appreciation of the storyteller. Here. Did the banjo came here with feel inauthentic once you got here in that this was Texas and you were coming with a Texas-y band from Illinois no it 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 really didn't um I didn't feel fraudulent you know um we were pretty good and I am a good copycat you know 
I didn't feel that I was being inauthentic. I, I can sing, I don't want to say I can sing anything, but I, I, I can sing well and I copy well. And so I was at home in, in that genre. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. And it was just a whole immersion into, you know, Texas dance hall culture. I knew nothing about that. It was fantastic. It was a whole other world. The Broken Spoke, um, Green Hall, we played dance halls all through Texas and into New Mexico and up up in Colorado. A couple of wet t-shirt contests in Albuquerque, <laughs> but we won't talk about that. Um, so, no, I, I didn't feel inauthentic at all. It was just another um, stop along the way, and it, it it stayed with me. Obviously, I live here again. Do you think that copycat thing has made you a better interpreter? Because it's one thing to be a copycat. You've spent a lot of time interpreting tunes. A lot of time. Across whole records. Across whole records. But the first cover record I made was essentially a, a tip of the hat to all the songs that I'd done in those in that decade before I actually wrote songs, well, more than a decade, you know, since I've been playing professionally since I was 18, 19 years old. So um, I was really proud of some of the covers I'd come up with. And yeah, I spent years and years and years making my living copying people. And uh, I got better and better at it, I think. I got uh, better at um, making the song my own. I think one of the songs I'm proudest of is the Naive Melody by the Talking Heads. And because I I heard the lyrics outside of their arrangement and I realized how profound and amazing they were and I, I turned it into just a, a ballad love song. You've got to have a personal connection to the song for it to be interpreted well. I mean, that's the criteria, right? Well, it is, although, you know, that one... It was, you know, lyrics are, same with the Gnarls Barkley song, Crazy, which I do. But it, again, it was like, wait a minute, there's ridiculously great lyrics in here. I want to sing them. But the same, you know, it's it's also true that just musically, you know, the lyrics can be bebop alula, you know. And if you're musically driven, it's harder for me because I'm a folk singer. But, you know, I, I whatever, whatever turns me on, I might attempt. I may not let anyone else hear it, but. There's a lot of uh, things that inspire me about, you know, when it comes to covering songs. When you were a pop star for those <laughs> couple of years, did that feel inauthentic because at heart you're a folk singer? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, I didn't know how to do it, you know. Um, when I think back on the the major couple of tours that I did, um in support of a few small repairs and Sonny came home, I just find it kind of amusing. Um, I don't ha- I don't have the moves. I don't have the um, that thing that that makes you wind the audience up and milk it for all it's worth and put on a a show. i'm I'm really kind of a it's you and me. You know, the audience and myself, I'm intimate. 
um, we did a good job. I think we played the music well, and I had a great time. But, yeah, it did. I didn't know what to wear. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a publicist who was telling me, you know, this is how you do it, because I didn't want one. But, yeah, it was it was a little strange. Could you look around at the time, though, and see what Bonnie Raitt and Sheryl Crow and all these folks were going through, which was basically the same story. I could. And that's where Lilith Fair comes in, because there were, I don't know, there were people who were more, you know, there was Chrissy Hind and, and Joan Jett, and, and they were obviously, um, you know, more rock and roll, tougher, which is something I've never been. But by and large, yeah, we were all in the same boat. So I I, uh, I felt inauthentic as a pop artist, but I didn't feel inauthentic going out and doing the show that I was doing. Yeah, I'm going to look for the exact list of things. Okay. But the book covers anorexia, clinical depression, <laughs> addiction, and all of that leading to career crisis. When you have that burst of pop stardom, that can't make any of those other things any better. That's why the timing was everything. Because by the time I had the hit, I was on solid ground. You So you were on solid ground at that point. I so, was on solid ground. So fame and mm-hmm. success didn't tweak any of those or trigger any of those things again? No. In okay. fact, my career, you know, my... The addiction was and still is arrested. Um, it's been, you know, 36 years. Um, the anorexia was short-lived, thankfully. Um, that just didn't really catch and stay. The depression is another matter, and um, that's been good for about 10 years. But it's been up and down, and, and it's just clinical. You know, sure, there's situational depression, but... Um, it, for me, it's it's clinical, and it, it's a question of uh, balancing medications. So I've been on the floor with it since, you know, since I got a record contract, and it, it's terrible. Um, I've played gigs, you know, where I didn't know how my hand was going to go to the next chord. Um, I did a gig where I walked off stage and said, my career's over, because, and I think I fooled them, you know. But it, it was horrific. Uh, you know, terrible experience. I've, um, but that's because of timing, not because of the situation. Correct. Because you're saying it's not situational. It's not. I have stage fright. No, I mean I've been it's thrown not... into. No, uh, uh-uh. I've been. Th- no, I can perform. That's the hardest thing I've ever done is songwriting in terms of my career. But no, I've been thrown into uh, depressions by uh, a breakup. You know, so I would say that was situational, but but never because of the work. Is it always sort of looming that I've got this thing, mm. and when am I going to see that dark place next? Mm. There's a tendency to look over one's shoulder. Um, and, of course, there are situational um, situational situations where... <laughs> Where you're going to feel depressed. So it's a little bit of PTSD with a person who's, who's you know, been suicidally depressed. To go, is this it? Is this it? Um, but you kind of learn to tell the difference. And, and thankfully, 
I think I'd be aware. I, I know the signs well enough. You know, you go into denial about it, like, and there's so much stigma snap out of it, you know, and a pill won't make you happy. And um, But I know the signs now. I think I'm pretty, pretty well-versed and pretty, um, what's the word, practical, you know, objective. Um, but no, it's I've been solid for for quite a while. But yeah, I think there's a, a a tendency to look over one's shoulder a little bit. You've talked about how your politics aren't the politics of the country; they're personal <laughs> politics, and that's part of the personal politics is talking openly about depression. It is. Um, you know what made a huge difference for me when I got sober, which is really the biggest turning point in my life. Um, was that people who are suffering from what I was suffering from were willing to talk about it. And it wasn't a psychologist or a doctor or someone who considered themselves an expert. It was people that were alcoholics that were willing to tell their story and were getting better. Nothing filled me with more hope than that. And same with depression. I remember reading when I was in a pretty bad way uh, William Styron's book, um, uh, Darkness Visible. And uh, and there have been several books like this. And it was someone who had been where I'd been and where I was and where I was afraid I might be and described the suffering um, and came out of it. So I figured if there's one service I can do, it's to be honest about that stuff. Because people who had gone through it and talked honestly about it made all the difference to me. So that's what I have to give. And there's a difference between people who are honest about it and people who preach and make it their brand. And you've right. never done that. No, you have to have some humility. And you have to be careful because um, if you tout your sobriety in an egotistical way, there are some people who are going to be on the fence about their problem and see you and not like you and go, well, pfft. I want to do what they're doing. You know, you've just got to be humbly honest, tell the truth, don't embellish, and, and don't don't uh, beat your chest ever because it really is a day at a time. In the big scheme of things, though, with all of those issues, you're better for having had music around than not? Music saved my life. Period. Since I was five years old. You know, I had depression and anxiety when I was a kid. Um, I was strange. It seemed like I had all this anxiety. I didn't belong. My parents didn't know what to do. I just carried it around like, uh, you know, like this ball and chain. I was ashamed of it. And, uh, but I could sing. I had an ear. My father loved music. We had great records. He played the guitar and that was it. That was the magic. It was always the magic. It still is the magic. And I'm just lucky enough that I had a talent for it, you know? So, yeah, it's I wouldn't know what else to do, Andy. I don't have any other skills, you know, and yeah, save me. So this acoustic album hmm. is track for track, steady on, the first album. Mm -hmm. To do that, you probably had to get real inside that record again. And listen to it and know it and figure out what you liked about it and what you didn't. Nah, I didn't go that far. No? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just honestly, you know, some I've done many times over the years and been pretty 
uh, regular part of my um, set list, but some I had kind of let go uh, for no particular reason. So I had to brush up on those. I mean, I really didn't remember how to play Stranded or Cry Like an Angel, and I had to bone up. And uh, so for me, it was just, it was almost just practical. You know, some I knew well, and I wouldn't have any trouble going in and recording, and, and some I had to really get more familiar with. What happened was, first of all, I rediscovered some things. I play Cry Like an Angel almost all the time now. I, I like that song, you know, and I'm glad I got to, to get to know it again. Um, but, you know, what the process really did to me and for me emotionally was give me acute nostalgia for that time for not only that time you know in the in the late 80s when this epiphany was coming about about what who I was as an artist what I needed to write about and what did I need to say um but the whole New York journey which was it's just um it was a a huge turning point in my life even the struggle, you know, and, and the scuffling days. And, I mean, it's, you know how you romanticize sometimes this, the struggle, the times when you, um, there's something about that desire and that ambition and that lust for what you have passion for. And you have fellow comrades, you know, who you're fighting it out with and, 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 and going for it with, and uh, then it as part of a small scene in a giant city. Correct, correct. And boy, did we have fun! And at the time, we probably would have told you we were miserable. I, I, you know, I don't know. But then it culminated into this dream come true, and the whole journey of that is what I was brought back to when I re-recorded these songs. Yeah. But you're in this case reinterpreting yourself yeah after making these records where you interpret other people's songs you're now reinterpreting your own material in a sense yes although the bulk of my career um has been me playing by myself acoustic guitar and myself and because that's practical or because it's that's what I'm good at. That's what you're good at. Yeah. And it's become practical, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> low overhead. Um, but one of the uh, one of the things that that made Steady On happen, um, a little history. I'd, I'd been writing some songs with John Leventhal. I met him in 81 or so. And he was writing pop music and, you know, uh, albeit sophisticated, in my opinion, uh, and he gave me the chance to write lyrics. He said, well, you, you know, you, you can write songs. You and I didn't believe I could write songs. So I did. I wrote lyrics to these pop songs. And they were pretty pretty bad. You know, I was trying to be steely Dan clever. And I wasn't. And I got discouraged and bored with myself and talk about feeling inauthentic and trying to figure out what the heck uh, I was who the heck I was supposed to be as an artist. So I kind of gave up, honestly, for a year. I was like, maybe I don't have to do this. Maybe this isn't who I am. Maybe there's something else to do. And about a year later, I thought, but I'm good. I'm good. And I, I'm good at this. So there's got to be something I can do. 
and I realized, I, what am I good at? I'm, I'm a folk singer. I'm an acoustic, I'm a, you know, solo acoustic artist. So I told John, you know, the next thing you give me, the next produced piece of music you give me, I'm going to deconstruct it down to a single guitar. And then I'm going to try and tell a story about myself because that's what my heroes did. And um, so he gave me a piece of music and I did what I intended to do. And it was Diamond in the Rough. And I knew something had happened. So the litmus test for most of those songs on Steady On was can I play them alone? So making this uh, acoustic version 30 years later, it just kind of seemed like a a preordained thing to do since that's kind of how they all got created. And then we did a produced record, which I love. But it's not a stretch to have done the acoustic version. Aside from the fact that they can all be stripped down to an acoustic guitar, is there a through line between the songs most people like the most of yours? A through line? Yeah. That... It's personal. You know, truth. I mean, on the on rare occasions, I've written about characters. Sunny came home being one, which is kind of interesting. Which then you later say is you anyway. Yeah, well, I think I was wrong. I don't oh, know who it okay. was. It was <laughs> Julie Speed painted the painting that's on the cover of the record, and I said, let's write a song about this woman. And I mean, we all have vengeful thoughts, and we're angry. And but no, it was it was actually fun, you know, to create this character. So. But I'd say there's just a, I don't know what else to do but tell the story that belongs to me and try to tell it, you know, have, be a good craftsperson, uh, create a song that people will want to listen to and won't be so opening a vein that no one can relate, you know, something people will want to hear 10 years from now, you know, still make sense and resonate. So I think there is that. You might need a little distance from the story you're trying to tell. But yeah, I just feel, you know, like like the guys and gals I heard here in 1976 here in Austin, you know, tell a story, tell your story. Is it weird that the way you looked at James Taylor or Carol Joni. King or Joni or yeah. Bonnie Raitt, mm. you are now by the nature of age an elder statesman? Yes. And there are now more than ever opportunities for women who play music. Right. It seems we're in that again. Right. Which is good. Yes. Is it weird to be in that other spot where people are looking up to you? Hmm. Where you're an elder statesman? Is it weird? Yeah. It's weird. It's a little bittersweet honestly, um, because it's the nature of the business. I mean, I am, I consider myself enormously lucky that I have a career. Um, a lot of my contemporaries back from, from that little fair time don't necessarily have them and I can, I can sell tickets. And that's my career. So I'm immensely grateful for that. But how relevant am I, you know, in uh, in what is popular, you know, at the moment, or cutting edge, or alternative, or Americana, or whatever we call these things? And um, 
Yeah, but Cardi B might not be a Sean Colvin fan, but hmm. Casey Musgraves likely is. Good point. Good point. So is that weird is what is what you're saying? Um, no, here's the thing. If, you know, people say to me, oh, you're great, you know, and you did this for me and you got me through this. You know, I know you hear this all the time. Well, that's true, but we've all had soundtracks to our lives. And as I said, you know, music saved me, it heals. And if I've done that for somebody else, whether it's you or the person that came to Waterloo and had their record signed or Casey Musgraves, that's pretty great. I think that's the biggest compliment, you know, I, 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 could, I could get, that I moved somebody and, and maybe helped them. But, you know, art, you know, it did what it was supposed to. It moved. It moved somebody. So if it's if it's Casey Musgraves or 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 whoever it is, that's 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 pretty great. And which makes it more sweet than bitter in the bittersweet equation. Well, the bittersweet is just I think um, the bitter is I don't know what is the bitter um, because you're not bitter that you're putting out this record yourself. No, because you can still sell tickets. Correct. I mean, I guess that's the antidote to bitterness. Yeah, I don't know why I say bittersweet. This is a really good question. <laughs> I think it's just really aging, you know, and feeling that you are less relevant, you know. and Which would and, make a lot of people bitter. Which would make a lot of people bitter. And especially as a, an older woman, you know, just um, simple stuff like, uh, you know, feeling invisible in this society, in this culture, to men, um, you know, they, they you just feel invisible. Um, I, or, you know, I do at sixty-three. I notice a difference, you know, and um, that's it's painful. You know, it's uh, it's not right. But you couldn't feel or look the way a. Th- 30-year-old you would have thought 63 would feel or look, right? I don't feel or look. Uh, uh, no, I still feel like I'm 15. I think we all do. That's my <laughs> that's my take on it. Um, no, I, I, I couldn't have imagined being being 63, and it's really not so bad. It's, it's just, uh, I just feel like it's our culture and that the women are kind of over the hill and... and past their best days and um, that's not true in every culture on Instagram you were the doting mother I was no you are in general there's a lot of hey look I did this right okay <laughs> which is not something a lot of people who were as successful as you during that period mm. probably look back and say that they did it right I was 42 when I had her, so I had some time to think about it, <laughs> and I had some time to work out my, um, can we swear? Mm-hmm. My shit. Um, with my upbringing, you know, and my childhood, and I, and I, you know, I guess the benefit of being older when you have a child is that maybe there's more wisdom and perspective. So um, I think, you know, I got her. And my parents were in their early 20s when they had me. And I was not the easiest kid, and they didn't get me. 
They did not get me. So that's what I am grateful for. I think I got her. I think I weathered storms with her and had compassion and understanding and sought help when it was needed and, um, you know, and appreciated what was uh, positive about her. And, you know, we had some rough times. Um, Not the two of us together, really, although as a teenager, (laughs) what can I say? But, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm proud and, uh, I'm really proud. I uh, we're close. And does it humble better. you in the way that you're somebody who's used to a stage light to people paying to come see you? Does it humble? Does you a kid a end up humbling you? Oh. because it's the opposite of all that. Oh yeah. I mean, she never um, put down my career. She always kind of had a pride in that. It made her special, I think. But yeah, they they hate you. From time to time, I and mean, you're the worst parent in the world. But here's the thing: <laughs> um, when I had her, to me there was a choice: either I find service elsewhere, because I was living in service of myself for years and years and years, and it began to seem rather empty. So I felt that I was either going to have to give myself over or dedicate myself to a cause. Um, not exclusively, I was still going to play music, but or give birth, you know, give life and have that be my service. So I, I feel like I knew what I was getting into, kind of. I mean, you can't prepare for being a parent. It's crazy. There is no manual. But I already had the humility, I think. Was I further humbled? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Does it in some ways also take care of the legacy issue because Mm. it's not about how people are going to remember these records or this one hit i've got my legacy Mm. which is my kid i never thought of that no i think i'm still pretty ego driven i I think in my obituary (laughs) i want them to to talk about the grammy awards you know um i just want to uh I just I just want to leave this world knowing she's taken care of and has her own story. Um, but in terms of being proud, I think that the child definitely uh, I don't I don't want to say Trump's, but uh, you know what I mean, the the career accolades, yeah. Were those Grammys almost bigger? I mean, they're not they're inextricably linked to Sonny Came Home. Mm. But if you just had a big hit and not that Grammy night. Well, it's, you know, it doesn't matter what I do now. I'm introduced as the three-time Grammy winner, and it looks good on paper. And it's great for, uh, you know, I got my picture on the front page of the hometown papers. And so the people that thought I was going to be a loser had another thing coming. So that was pretty great. And I was not the slam dunk for those Grammys. Um I was not. So I was pretty surprised and pretty moved that I just felt like I was a bit of a dark horse and and uh, that song got through to people. I don't know, the, the, the jury of my peers kind of thing um, was, was really meaningful to me. I mentioned in passing that this record is out on your label. <laughs> 
are you stuffing envelopes? Are you mailing records to people? Like, how independent is this? I'm not doing that. I've got someone else doing that. But um, the records are coming to me. The LPs and the CDs are coming to me in boxes, and I sign them all. And that's basically for for pre-sale. What else am I doing on the ground here? Um, No, I'm not not mailing them out. But it is different. I don't know what else there is to do. (laughs) (laughs) Does it feel different than when there was, I mean, you chose to do it this way. I did. You don't regret that? No, it's a little more... um, anxiety provoking because you're on the you're you know butt is on the line financially so you know you think about things you didn't think I mean you know I was in the days of here's your budget and it was huge and you know you'll just recoup maybe but who cares you know and here's your tour support and uh, you know it just doesn't happen anymore Uh, so but I own it you know, and, um, and we'll just see. This is the first time I've ever done this. And you kind of put your sights on on the idea that you just want to break even, like he, Richard Manuel said in The Last Falls. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. But that, <laughs> I just want to break even. But that's the new normal. Yes. In this business. It certainly is. Is it's you. Pretty wild. You go from unlimited budgets mm-hmm. and the potential to make what seems like unlimited money yeah. to I hope I break even yeah. and make some money on the road. Yep. And it becomes very important. Obviously, you have to take your merchandise out there because who's buying CDs? Um, people like vinyl. I'm seeing that more than they like uh, CDs. But you, you got to carry that out there because people will buy that stuff after they see your show, or at least people my age will. <laughs> All of that said, is this still as much fun as it used to be? Yeah, in ways it's more fun because I, uh, I mean, speaking of humility, I appreciate it more. Uh, The longevity, in ways it's not as fun because my sense of responsibility to the audience has escalated I have a perspective now I used to be kind of cocky I can do this you know I'm always good and now I have a response I feel the responsibility they're they paid they're here to see a good show and it's all on me it's all on me to do it and uh, that that creates pressure I, I really didn't didn't feel before um, how did the cockiness manifest itself before well I just wasn't ever nervous um, I didn't have a set list. Uh, I was just more casual. And I think part of that had to do with how insanely much I played in those scuffling days. I mean, every night in different formats. And then the promo push. Well, no. By the time we were doing the promo push for Steady On, I had just been working so much I could do it in my sleep. I was really sharp, you know. And um, now, between gigs, I I really am not a big practicer. So I think, uh, and plus I'm older. So I think I'm not quite as agile and don't quite trust my 
agility as much as I used to. But no one seems to notice. I must be doing all right. It's it's just kind of on me, you know, that I um, that I just want to live up to whatever I've done in the past. You know? And I think we're at a weird spot where audiences want vulnerability, not ego. Well, that I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that I'm good at. I can, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't plan a, a show. I don't plan the, the dialogue. I don't, um, I mean, I retell stories and stuff, but every show is a new experience. You know, I don't just do it by rote. Um, and it, you're feeling out I am feeling out who this audience is because they change and what this venue is and what this sounds like. Because if it sounds bad, you're sunk. You know, if you're not hearing it well, you're sunk. So then it's just work. Um, but each audience is different. So you, you take their temperature the first couple of songs and then you kind of know how to relate to them. Can you sometimes tell walking on stage? I, I've heard from people who do this. Well, that you can walk on stage and in the time it takes you to get from the wings to the microphone, know what kind of night that's going to be. I think that's essentially if people go crazy or tepid, you know, and then if they're in between, well, okay, that's that. But yeah, if people, what I like to say sometimes is if people really go nuts when I walk out, I wait for the pause to stop and I go, can I just leave now? <laughs> because, right. you know, let's just go with that ovation. That's the only thing I can think of as far as uh, knowing what night it's going to be. Uh, I don't think it's that simple, honestly. And then do you just come off the road and hope that there's more of those good nights than... Than not good Than nights. not. Yeah. Yeah. And even when they're not good for me, I think I'm I'm a pro and, and I, I, I put on a pretty good pretty good show it's just people say what's your favorite venue and that you've ever played and i played carnegie hall and that was great but you can play a beautiful theater with shitty sound and a great audience but the sound's horrible and it is it is work 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 um and you can play a dump that has amazing sound and a great audience and it's pure pleasure um. Yeah. How much time are you spending now writing for another record? <laughs> no. No, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. In fact, at this Austin City Limits Hall of Fame thing, I, I'm gonna do a new song. So that's pretty exciting for me because it gets the older I get, the harder it is for me to write. I don't have as much to say, or there's not as much drama going on. Um, I don't write on the road very well. You've got Jackson Brown paying yeah. tribute to you. Yeah. Is that one of those things, even though you, you've you known him forever? It never gets... You have broke. to wrap your head around that. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's crazy. I, I don't I don't know if I'll ever fully believe it. You know, it's just beyond my... You know, I listened to Jackson Brown when I was 14, 15 years old. In fact, I, I remember hearing Rock Me on the Water by Linda Ronstadt. And then I heard it on this first Jackson Brown record, and I didn't know who he was. And then there were all these other great songs, and I thought he was covering all of them. And I didn't know who wrote it for the, you know, when I heard the Linda Rodstadt version, I said, this guy really knows how to pick his songs. So 
you know. Um, but yeah, he's he's one of the greats, and that he's going to sing my praises. Another dream come true. Thank you. Thank you. You'll find Sean Colvin's 30th anniversary acoustic edition of Steady On wherever you buy music and at seancolvin.com. Meanwhile, our October issue of the magazine's out now and features the way Texas history is being rewritten and the hunt for a serial killer in Laredo. Both those stories are also at texasmonthly.com, along with daily coverage of all things Texas. And we'd love it if you consider subscribing to our show, leaving a comment or rating it wherever you found us, and maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week. You are listening to WXTM, and this is your top of the hour news. We now go to reporter Wendell Truitt. Dateline, Sweetwater, Texas. Tangled turbines foretell turmoil at stricken wind farm. This is Wendell Truitt for WXTM with an update to my previous report of the town-rattling phenomenon some are now calling the Texline Incident. I now find myself 360 miles south of Texline, broadcasting from the sprawling Sweetwater Wind Farm. I am accompanying a group of Nolan County Utilities officials dispatched to investigate reports of severe damage to several wind turbines. Surveying the scene myself, I can affirm to my listeners that the word severe fails to accurately describe the destruction I am currently witnessing. From where I stand now, I count upwards of a dozen demolished turbines. Mangled, twisted, and marred, many of the affected towers have been snapped completely in half. Various components of shattered turbines litter the area. Massive blades that once harnessed the West Texas wind are now strewn across the landscape. It is all too apparent to this reporter's eye that the havoc wrought here would demand a force of colossal magnitude. One awestruck Nolan County official, who asked to remain anonymous, said, quote, I can't say precisely what, but something sure has hit the fan. He then pointed to evidence of large gouges on several segments of destroyed apparatus. Examination of the strange gouges shows they occur at regular intervals and predominantly in sets of three. A clear, viscous fluid has also been discovered, splattered on the wrecked machinery along the path of destruction. This particular development, however, only serves to deepen the mystery of what occurred here. One thing that has become clear, at least in this reporter's mind, the Texline incident and the destruction at Sweetwater trace a path of confounding events that we have every reason to believe will continue. As reassurance to my listeners, I will continue along this path and bring forth any breaking news concerning these extraordinary occurrences. For WXTM, this is Wendell Truitt reporting from Sweetwater, Texas. This concludes WXTM Top of the Hour News.